Happy Monday and welcome to the Patrick Henry podcast, where we hold the Western elite's feet to the fire for their many mistakes. We have some really interesting polling numbers today in the wake of Davos, the ultimate elite fantasy event. And you can almost divide up political risk analysts and firms by whether they think Davos is important or not. Uh, folks like George Friedman and myself say no, uh, the reason being that if you become part of the elite you study, it leads to bias, and that's human, that you're going to run into people that you meet, that you meet you're going to have opinions about them, like some, dislike others, and it's going to color the analysis. Famously, George Friedman and Geopolitical Futures, an able rival of mine, uh, is headquartered in the very cool city of Austin, Texas, thousands of miles away, both literally and intellectually, from Washington, and they view the rest of the world from this distant lens, this more Olympian lens, this less personal lens, this less biased lens. And that's why I think geopolitical futures does good work. For me, it was less a matter of method than a matter of my history. I washed up shipwrecked after the Iraq War, right about that, but very difficult for me. I was a country music song at the time. I'd lost my partner, my house, my family, my country, and had to make do with what I what what it came upon in Europe, which has been wonderful. I've ended up staying here for a long while, and although I may go back if the politics are right, up until now it's been a, a wonderful and blessed exile. But of course, I didn't know that at the time. But I've made a virtue out of a necessity, and so the distance I have, the ocean, that keeps me from being part of the Washington elite, but also maintaining. My ties to the elite as a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a made man in mafia terms in foreign policy. This has been a good thing for me, that I know the people involved at, at a fundamental level, and yet I have the distance to view them far more objectively. So where George Friedman used method, I used historical circumstance, but I think that's a better route. Other folks, and Nouriel Rabini and, and, and Ian Bremer leap to mind, love to go to these things. They go to Davos and Jackson Hole and take pictures of Rabini ridiculously like the uncool kid in high school. There's a picture of Rabini hobnobbing with, with Neil Ferguson and uh, hugging him, actually Neil Ferguson and, and a creep daddy in Bremer at Jackson Hole as though the cool kid wants to hang out with a football team. I find this both pathetic um, and bad analytic and bad analytics because you end up being part of an elite that you're there to study. Uh, famously, Ferguson said as to why he got Brexit wrong after being skeptical that it would be avoided for many years, that he simply knew too many people around George Osborne and and um, David Cameron at the time, and he liked going to their cocktail parties. I can't think of anything worse than going to a cocktail party but with David Cameron or George Osborne, but beyond that, you shouldn't go. These are people you analyze for the businesses and the firms that we work for. You should know them, but not be of them. And this is a key difference. And I've worked very hard with the Patrick Henry podcast at nailing down what Western elites are, are so wrong about and why people despise them. And we're going to have two basic answers to that today. First, though, we have some great new polling in the wake of Davos. Davos was its usual semi-comical event. My favorite moment was Jamie Dimon struggling to remember names of cities where he went on a bike tour that were in the center of the country. And he managed to stammer out, I believe, Boise and Casper, Wyoming, desperately trying to pose as a man of the people. 
But give Jamie Dimon credit. To quote Bob Dylan, you don't have to be a weatherman to know which way the wind is blowing. And Jamie Dimon said some sensible things, trying to desperately reposition himself somehow ludicrously as not a member of the elite. But he did manage to say that, look, that, that denigrating half the country as Democrats have done, uh, and he fused together the famous criticism of Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton to their donors, meaning this is what they really thought in a closed-door meeting uh, when Obama said famously that the problem with the right and conservative populace is that they cling to their guns and their religion as though um, they're somehow a Neanderthal man. And Hillary went further and, and said to her donors that, you know, half of America should be in the, is the basket of deplorables, an island of misfit toys, then basically if you don't agree with her, you're, an, you're a racist, an Islamophobe, or something, a subhuman is what she's saying. And Diamond made the sensible point that if you denigrate half the country, it's hard to govern it. And that's true. You get nowhere by doing that. But the reason he's saying that is that he's a famous weather vane and he knows which way the wind's blowing. And it's blowing toward populism, as I called and our firm called months ago now. We were the first to call it. Donald Trump will win the election. Next time, at the time people were laughing at us, it's too early, blah, blah, blah. Well, they're not laughing now. And more and more, that seems to be the case. But I want to look at a deeper level at what the folks at Davos believe that the rest of us don't, why there is this divide. And there's some really interesting new research, which actually gives us some analytical precision that I wanted to share with the community today, which is why we'll start and spend most of the podcast talking about the alternate reality of Western elites and then just a little bit at the end, reiterating why they're so despised. The research comes from RMG Polling. This is Scott Rasmussen's firm. And rather, and this, this is from, or the polling is recent, it's from early January of this year. And he actually defines what he's talking about when he says elites, which is very, very welcome. And he defines them in three ways. First, by education. These are folks with a postgraduate degree. Second, these are folks who are well-off, if not fabulously wealthy, making over $150,000 a year. And then third, these are people who live in high-density areas, which would be known to the rest of us as a city. So the base definition of what an elite is for him is someone with a postgraduate degree making $150,000 and living in a city. So let's compare me and my time in living in Culpeper, Virginia, which is wonderful. I had a a small estate, about 10 acres there, and a beautiful house there. And would I qualify for this? Yeah, I have a postgraduate degree. Yeah, I was making more than 150000 But I didn't live in a high-density area. I lived in an exurb uh, called Pepper, a booming exurb, but an exurb nonetheless. And, of course, the people of Culpeper tended to be populist Republicans. So his theory, anecdotally, for me at least, works, that the people that I hung out with when I'd go have my fancy coffee on the weekend in my somewhat yuppified former barn that was a great coffee house, uh, the Frenchman's Corner. Uh, it was a wonderful place run by an expat who he and I would argue politics. A lovely guy, made fantastic pastries, great coffee. But we're not quite part of this elite because we don't live in a high-density area. We're out in the countryside, and we were both quite staunch Republicans. So the Rasmussen theory works of RMG. So again, keep this in mind as we talk. He defines elites in the West as folks with postgraduate degrees making more than 150K a year, uh, so they're well off, and they live in high-density areas or a city. Well, now let's look at some of the results he found, which are extraordinary, I thought, and really merit an entire podcast, which is why we're doing this. Um, first, elites, 
given this definition, give Joe Biden an 84% approval rating, as opposed to 40% from the rest of us, from non-elites. And so these people love Joe Biden. They don't like him. They love him. 84% is one heck of a number for a man who's struggling to be politically relevant and on the real clear politics average is scraping the bottom level of relevance, which is 40%. As we've said many times before, you can take the temperature of a presidency simply by the approval rating. If the president's approval rating is over 60, he's into Roosevelt-Reagan territory where he can tell Congress what to do. And if it's below 40, he's trying to squelch rumors that he's dead. So Biden is barely relevant in the world, and yet elites love him. They give him an 84% approval rating. So this is an entirely different reality. Second, these are folks that have favorable views of the very elitist groups that are currently under siege. 89% of elites like university professors. In my mind, and I speak as a guy with a PhD, the root of all evil, the most reactionary group of people in the world are university professors who want, who are guild in a medieval way, want no merit to enter in to the selection of people. If you're a white man studying the American presidency, as has recently been said, you have absolutely no chance to get tenure. What in the world is going on? And yet elites, 89% love university professors, 79% like journalists, also a denigrated advocacy group now. How many journalists have reported on Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s campaign for the presidency, which is over 21% in some polls? He's polling ahead of Ross Perot as a third-party candidate. You might think that that would make, lead to a story in the mainstream media, meaning ABC, CBS, NBC. And yet they've gone to radio silence on the guy because he's getting in the way of Joe Biden and the Democratic Party, for which they are a fully paid up propaganda arm. And yet somehow 79% love journalists. They also like lawyers somehow and union leaders. 78% of elites like lawyers, despite jokes that what would a thousand lawyers at the bottom of the Thames be? A good start. Lawyers and union leaders, 78%, and even members of Congress who've been in the Ted Bundy, Charles Manson category of popularity, 67%. So the very groups that populists say are the enemy, elites like university professors at 89%, journalists at 79%, lawyers and union leaders at 78%, and even members of Congress at 67%. Meaning, not only do elites like Joe Biden, they love the institutional a soft power that dominates from the progressive left. Third, two-thirds said that they would prefer um, a school system where teachers uh, and the educational establishment, not parents, decide what a child should be taught. Again, two-thirds prefer an educational system where teachers and educational experts decide what should be taught and not parents. This is rule of the experts, which goes back to the dreaded Woodrow Wilson. Leave everything to experts. There is a, this uh, kind of favorability, you know, penchant for expertise um, leads to anti-democratic outcomes, and we'll get to this. But these are people who love Joe Biden, love the establishment, the progressive establishment, want rule by experts, and of course, there is an anti-democratic tilt if you love rule by experts, which is the fourth point. Nearly 50% of these elites believe the U.S. allows too much individual freedom, that the peasants have too much power to act on their own, and if only they listen to experts, 
everything would be better. And this compares with 60% of the rest of us of normal voters who believe there's too much government control. Gigantic difference over the key notion of control that's playing out in this election. Joe Biden, this is the party of experts, the Democratic Party, people who give to it are therapists, teachers, union organizers, lawyers, bankers, the Hollywood people. This, this is the establishment folks. Give them money um, and think there should be more control. Almost 50% say the U.S. provides too much individual freedom in the Constitution, whereas 60% of voters believe there is too much government control. This is a gigantic difference. So again, elites building on our argument. They love Biden. They love the pillars of the establishment. They love rule by experts. And they think the Constitution allows for too much individual liberty. Next, 77% of elites um, we want to put the program into, in, into practice, and they favor the rationing, the strict rationing of gas, meat, and electricity to fight climate change. So they are willing to do away with your right to get gas, whatever the cost, meat, and electricity. I assume that reading The Guardian, we're all going to be eating bugs soon. Uh, so it's gas, meat, and electricity to fight climate change. So the overwhelming issue for the experts is climate change. And 77% of elites think there need to be strict rationing of gas. Again, no, no liberty, no choice, meat and electricity to fight climate change versus 28% of the rest of us believing this. So an overwhelming number of elites, 77% say strict rationing, government-controlled mandates as to what we can put in our cars, what we can eat, and how much electricity we can take versus 28% of normal people, an overwhelming 72% don't agree. Next, fully 70% of average voters uh, say they'd be willing to pay $100 a year um, in terms of climate change. So, so they're up for paying $100 a year. 70% of average folks are willing to pay a very small amount of money in order to deal with climate change, a, a big majority. However, 70% of elites say, say they'd pay $250 to whatever it takes um, in order to deal with the climate issue. So blank check from the elites, very limited check from normal people. And this has been an issue in Germany, that, that the populist directions in Germany started with this idea that you can mandate away democracy, that elites know better, that they'll quietly push these mandates and then impose them on the rest of us for the simple idea that they said, well, in order to help the climate, we have to change the way we heat our homes. So everybody needs a new pump that is energy efficient. The problem is that these pumps cost thousands of euros and the average German doesn't have thousands of euros just sitting around in order to help the climate. And so when this was mandated, enforced, all hell broke loose. The Green Party went into a political freefall. Everybody had to backtrack because whatever you mandate, unless you win over the acquiescence of the people, these mandates simply don't work, and you help the AFD, ironically, the far-right populist party in Germany, um, dangerous far-right party, I might add, the AFD, has been helped by this, along with new, a new far-left populist party, all because they're trying to mandate thousands of dollars being spent to make the environment better when other people don't have thousands of dollars. And this reminds me of the Gilets jaunes comment which is my favorite soundbite of the decade. Uh, when the French were, were raising petrol costs, getting rid of the subsidies that help farmers get from place to place to place, all in the name of the environment, 
the Gilets Jaunes, of course, crashed down upon Paris. And one Gilet Jaune, who unfortunately is anonymous, was asked about this, and he said, what's the difference between you and the elite? And he said, brilliantly, they're worried about the end of the world, and we're worried about the end of the month. That in worry, that these are first world problems. Whether islands disappear in Micronesia is not a major concern to average people struggling to get through the month. And more often, everybody's in favor of helping the climate. That's not the issue. What the Rasmussen poll does is begin to answer the real question. What are you prepared to do to help the climate? How much money, how much sacrifice are you prepared to make? And it's clear that average people struggling to get through the month, not really caring whether islands in Micronesia disappear or not, that that's a ridic ridiculous peripheral concern for people, barely making ends meet with the cost of living crisis in the Western world and living standards declining post-COVID, with Europe growing at nothing, zero, Germany in recession, the engine of Europe with its engine broken now that it doesn't get cheap Russian gas as an input, the United States growing at a far more robust pace, but having had this spike in inflation and prices being up, um, which is cumulative inflation, since Biden spent money like a drunken sailor and let the inflation genie out of the bottle, all this going on, they're prepared to spend about 100 bucks. Whereas elites are prepared to write a blank check to deal with the environment, they do care about these first world theoretical doomsday problems care far less about the sufferings of their own people. So let's look at these differences from the point of view of a normal person who's not a member of an elite with a postgrad degree making more than 150,000 bucks and living in a city. How do they look at this? And this is why elites are despised. One, they love Joe Biden, and average people would say Joe Biden can't get through the morning without telling a story or a lie. One, and the most recent one, that his son, Bo, who died tragically from brain cancer, somehow died in Iraq. He keeps saying this, and no one calls him to account for it. It's disturbing. A, he believes it, which is even more worrying, or B, he's telling a lie. Either way, I'm worried about the president's competence, as are most people in the country. But elites love him. They ignore all this and say, no, he's great. 84% love him. Two, they have a favorable opinion of all the groups that are oppressing the rest of us. University professors, where again, if you're a white man wanting to study the American presidency, you have absolutely no hope of tenure on the eastern seaboard at a good university. None. What in the world are we doing? Meanwhile, uh, the former president of Harvard wrote like 11 papers in 20 years. I've had months where I've written 11 papers, where I've written 11 articles, not academic papers, but articles. And guess what? 11 papers, threadbare, but she ticked the boxes. Woman, tick. African-American, tick. Nifty story to tell, tick. And she ruthlessly enforced uh, the DEI mantra. And so we're going to do away that racialism will dominate the way we look at universities, not scholarship as she had none. Most people don't like that. Most people don't like journalists who are now fully paid up members of the propaganda wing of the Democratic Party. They're not even reporting on Bobby Kennedy, an independent candidate sitting at 21% because they know that might hurt Joe Biden. What in the world? This isn't Woodward and Bernstein. I just rewatched All the President's Men. What a great movie. The last of Alan Pacula's Paranoia Trilogy and fantastic performance by Jason Robards as Ben Bradley. I don't see Ben Bradley, Catherine Graham, and Woodward and Bernstein out there. I see a bunch of hacks. Uh, lawyers, I'm moving on. 
Members of Congress, I'm moving on. And yet elites love them at a rate of between 67 and 89%. Third, two-thirds of elites say they want teachers and educational authorities like uh, Randy Weingarten, the witless head of the teachers union, who still somehow thinks she didn't close down uh, at schools, uh, destroying a generation of children over COVID and refused to bring her people back to work uh, unless things were somehow sanitized because they liked working at home and watching box sets. And two thirds say, leave it to them. They've done such a fine job teaching the kids nothing. And we all know they know nothing, nothing. Uh, I can tell you this is someone who has interns and cares about them. They come to me not knowing the basics of my profession, meaning they don't know who the secretaries of state in the 20th century are and can't tell you in a few sentences what the main ones did. This is shameful. These are people who go to good universities and come out learning nothing with a credential. So they're loved by elites, and they say leave it to the experts, government of the experts, despite the experts running the world into a ditch, more of which later, 50% of elites say the problem is there's too much freedom. The little people have too much freedom to squawk at them, such as myself. Uh, this compares to 60% of the rest of us who say there's too much government control. 77% of elites support the strict rationing of gas, meat, and electricity to further their political causes. The rest of us can shut up and do as we're told and have our lifestyles changed forever so they can worry about islands in Micronesia while the rest of us are worrying about getting through the month. And more than 70% of voters say they'd be willing to pay only about 100 bucks for the environment, whereas the elites say let it ride blank check. So when you add all this all up, you have a totally different reality. The bifurcation of the reality of Western elites and normal human beings is the key defining issue of the Western world. I thought the Patrick Henry podcast at the beginning would be an interesting side point to what's going on. The structural problem beneath everything as we look at political risk. But it's become very clearly, and I sensed it might be, but wasn't sure, the defining issue that, dis that, that divides people in Europe, in the United States, in the developed world. And it's between those who have this weird alternate view worrying about the end of the world and the rest of us worrying about the end of the month. Worse, the elites have taken, they're not only incompetent, they're authoritarian. They think most of us have too much liberty, whereas we think we don't have enough. There can't be enough. Uh, they think we have too much liberty. And then secondly, with this liberty, they worry that it needs further needs to be taken away from us so we can strictly ration since we don't know any better and don't worry enough about islands in Micronesia or the rest of the world actually also living up to standards uh, put forward by various UN conferences where no one lives up to them as the Chinese fire up their coal plants and the Indians fire up their coal plants. But we're going to commit economic suicide. And while they're worrying about that, they say, we will just strictly mandate and ration it. So shut up and do what you're told. And people don't like that. People might just be able to stomach this authoritarian government of the experts if it was any good. I wouldn't, but people might. The point is, it's not any good. Um, the last point to make is this is an authoritarian elite living in an alternate reality. And that's part of why it's despised, looking down its nose and trying to oppress the rest of us. And by oppress, let me be specific, I mean limit our liberty. Limit our liberty and tell us to shut up and do what we're told. It's a soft authoritarianism, but it is Robespierreist nonetheless. And this soft authoritarianism is a key point. But the elite, and here Jamie Dimon, is, we come back to Jamie Dimon, is to blame. 
there's always an elite, as I've said, historically, as a historian, in every society, and there always will be, and there's nothing wrong with that. All elites guard their privileges jealously. All elites, I just finished watching Succession, are ridiculously entitled. All elites have more corruption than they ought to. All elites don't have enough upward mobility and try to guard their prerogatives. This is true of every elite from, from the Greeks onwards. That isn't the point. The point is, do these elites also add value for society as a whole? Do they give something back? So you might say in the 1930s and 1940s in the United States, well, yeah, our elite annoys me, but there's enough income, there's enough mobility that you can join the elite still that the aspirational middle class can join it. And this elite's actually done some good things. It got us through the Depression and it won World War II, defeated fascism and imperial Japan, Japanese militarism. So this elite, on balance, adds value. You could argue the post-war American elite. Well, we won the Cold War uh, with limited deaths. I mean, I was just talking to a friend of mine, Tom. Um, there were casualties, certainly in Korea and Vietnam, 100,000 Americans directly, many, many more millions around the world in the Cold War, if not hundreds of thousands, but yeah, let's say millions it will be, uh, died, but... In the end, the Soviet Union rather peacefully, rather extraordinarily imploded without a nuclear war. So that's victory for Kennedy and Nixon and Eisenhower and Truman. And they also unleashed prosperity by allowing capitalism full reign in the United States, the greatest period of economic prosperity in the history of the world. So that elite, for all that it's annoying, did some good things. It made us rich. It kept us out of world war and led us to win the Cold War. These are tangible goods. And as long as an elite delivers tangible goods, people will tend to put up with its nonsense, its arrogance, its hauteur, its we know better than you and are better than you. It will put up with the social nonsense as long as it delivers some goods, like Franklin Roosevelt's elite did and Harry Truman and Dwight David Eisenhower's elite did. Uh, no doubt about it that they did. Let's have a look at Jamie Dimon's elite. Let's have a look at the elite of my lifetime and how I see the elite. I ought to be a card-carrying member of this. I have a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations. I'm a made man in mafia terms in the foreign policy establishment. I live in Europe. I have a degree. I have an advanced degree. I run my political risk company around the world, which does well, thank God. I have great people that I work with, and we flourished through a lot of hard work, a lot of risk that we took on, and keeping calm and carrying on, and keeping my nerve in bad times, and flourishing in good. But I had to be part of this elite, and yet I despise them. And Jamie Dimon, the human weather vane, is rowing back. Why? Why? As always, we come to this. It's because our elite hasn't delivered these public goods. At all. At all. Walter Russell Mead, my friend, wrote a column in the Wall Street Journal on this recently. Uh, but he didn't go nearly far enough. Walter's a kindly man, and I put it down to his kindness. But he ought to have been far harder on the elite. He says now they ought to be competent. They haven't been competent for a generation and a half. Let's look objectively, historically, at what the present elite, with all these alternate views and arrogances and desire to be authoritarian, has done. It has been authoritarian and incompetent. These are the people that gave us Iraq, that gave us Afghanistan, that gave us the financial crisis in the world, that ignored the rise of China, that ignored the rise of populism, that bungled COVID to the point the kids can barely read, and that now tells us, trust us and shut up and do what we say. This is beyond tone deaf. This is Louis XV-like Freudian death instincts. 
This is an elite that really ought not to exist. Not because elites are inherently bad. The question is, do they deliver public goods? This is the elite, again, that gave us Afghanistan and the endless war in Iraq and spent a fortune on it to, to the detriment of the people of the region and the United States uh, in making Iran the dominant power in the Gulf, spending a trillion dollars, killing, having thousands of Americans die, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis die, uh, leading to the birth of ISIS, which is beyond description in terms of evil, and making the region worse than we found it after spending a trillion hard-earned dollars that maybe we should put to education reform, amongst other issues. So there's that. Afghanistan, a war that went on for 20 years when everyone knew we were not going to remake Afghan warlords' views of women's rights in about two years. And yet on we went because nobody wanted to be left holding the can saying, we did this. They all did it. They're all guilty. The, the financial crisis, you know, and, and, and I, I work for bankers and, and want us to be careful, but do you really think the rest of us have forgotten that we had to bail you out, that, that we love what had to happen? We had to do it, but nobody liked it and no one's forgiven you. And the idea that at Davos you pontificate to us is a little insulting, I have to say, to the rest of us. We haven't had amnesia. We're aware that you ran the world economy into a ditch and we had to save you and your precious lifestyles when, frankly, you've been terrible stewards of the global economy. They ignore the rise of China, worrying about terrorism. An understudied second-order problem became an overstudied second-order problem. All the while, we missed the one big geopolitical danger coming to fruition, China becoming a superpower by stealth while we were preoccupied. You missed the corresponding rise of populism, and you missed fundamentally COVID. Dr. Fauci and his testimony in the last few weeks is execrable as a human being, execrable. Absolutely a horrible man who now admits the six-foot distancing was just made up. So much for following the science. Who discredited the scientists who signed on to the Great Barrington Declaration, saying we should shelter those who are older because that's who it affects, and the rest of us should get on with the business of living and raising money to pay for COVID, which would have made a heck of a lot more sense. Instead, we shut down schools with the least likely group of people to be infected children, and as a result, none of them can read, and we will be dealing with a fallout from the COVID generation forever. Already, the tablets and all the platforms and all the social media have made them have the attention span of a fruit fly. Already, they haven't dealt with people enough at all. And so let's isolate them under house arrest for a couple of years and do at-home learning, which is a you know oxymoron. Um, I, I certainly heard it here in our household. Um, execrable. And, and Fauci, now I have nothing to do with that. This man should be held to account. This elite should be held to account. They've given us nothing but disaster. And now they're saying we should only have government by the experts, meaning us, and trust us. I have a historical saying. Why in the world should anyone trust them? And this is the key issue of our day. And so next time you hear Robert Kagan say, if Donald Trump wins, democracy is on the line, make a simple substitute in your head and everything will make sense. Democracy isn't on the line. There is no sign whatever that the constitutional order is in the remotest danger. What is in danger is the primacy of this group of elites. 
utterly discredited and threadbare if the Republicans win, the neoconservatives around Mr. Kagan will no longer call the shots anymore, that Trump's takeover will be complete, that the Jacksonians and Jeffersonians that I talk about in The Last Best Hope, our book, will dominate the party going forward. So it's not democracy that's in danger. It's Robert uh, Kagan's sway, his influence that's in danger, along with Max Boot and Applebaum, the whole awful gang of them. If you substitute in the people whose priorities are on the line, whose influence is on the line, whose position is on the line for danger to democracy, everything makes sense. The alternate reality of Western elites is the key dividing issue today in the Western world. And it's time, as the Patrick Henry podcast tries to, we hold them to account. Thank you so much. I just wanted to get into the Rasmussen polling to start the week because it's so incredibly interesting, uh, really laying out in some precision analytically as to what the elite is and how differently they think from the rest of us. And again, the reason they're despised in one sentence is they're incompetent and authoritarian at the same time. I can't think of a worse combination. As a way to fight them, we come to the last best hope. Uh, the book is off to a great start tomorrow. I will put this uh, probably not on the site because I don't know how, if unless I get some help from the staff, but I will put on my LinkedIn the full opening salvo for the book's PR, which is the John Quincy Adams podcast, the long conversation I had with John and Patrick uh, about the book in detail. I, I commend you to listen. John has been a great friend and John Quincy Adams to the work that we do. And it was a great conversation. It's a wonderful way to head off our PR campaign. The book has done very well. Again, been on the top 40 in the UK with no PR at all. This has been great. Uh, so please do listen to it. I'll put it on the LinkedIn as soon as I get it. Probably also on Twitter if I can manage it uh, and try to get it on here, but I'm not sure that I can. But we will get that out to you. That will be coming up. For those of you who haven't bought The Last Best Hope yet, now, now, now is the time Please go on Amazon and buy today. The sales are great, but we want to really knock them up. And for those of you who, uh, who, who we've talked before, who are in our inner core of our community, please do just take a moment now and write us a recommendation. Give us the five stars and say, can't wait to read the book. So many of you have. We're already over 40. Um, our unofficial goal, I can now tell you this and reveal things behind the curtain, is to get to 50. And then the algorithm really starts to work for us. And we're at, I don't know, 41, I think, today, which is a great, great organic start. Please do just take that moment for our community. Um, and if you like things like the Patrick Henry podcast, this very unique take on the world, please do spend that minute and write us a recommendation. We, we really appreciate it. And please do subscribe. We're on to the next. Uh, hopefully we'll be talking about the culture, unless something gets in our way. But the next album you must listen to after the great uh, response to Marvin Gaye and Joni Mitchell is to look at one of the most underrated and important and wonderfully melodic bands of all time. The Birds in their heyday, the glorious years uh, between 1965 and 1968. And we'll look at their first album, their never bettered album, Mr. Tambourine Man. Everybody take care.